Stig Abel is the editor and publisher of the esteemed Times Literary Supplement. He presents Front Row, an arts magazine show on the equally esteemed Radio 4, and he pops up as a commentator in the British and US news media. Upon graduating from Cambridge University, he enjoyed a meteoric rise through the media industry to become director of the Press Complaints Commission in his early 20s and managing editor of The Sun newspaper in his early 30s. His ambitious and well-received book, How Britain Really Works, examines exactly what the title suggests. Stig, thank you. Um, give us your story then. You're from the Midlands originally and you were the first generation to go to university? Yeah, my mum interestingly actually went as a mature student to Loughborough where we're from university, but she didn't when she was younger. Um, and my brother and I went to, to university. So I come from um, the sort of middle, middling part of the country. I, I wrote a book this year and I said, said there's a line from Bill Bryson where he talks about Des Moines in, in Iowa. I came from there, somebody had to. And I kind of, that's, my, that's the beginning of my, my book about Britain. I came from Loughborough, somebody had to. And it's kind of an example of the very middle, very uh, middle ground part of, uh, of, of the country, really. And so my parents uh, were from working class backgrounds, um, from the area, um, and then scraped and, and worked hard to become kind of comfortably middle class. But I'm very conscious of, you know, my grandparents when you used to visit them. Um, my grandma lived in the middle in the council estate my my dad grew up in and you're never very far from that so you were quite, I was kind of had one eye in either direction growing up you were kind of very conscious of of limitations mm. and um, uh, and poverty really and you're also very aspirational because you kind of had this belief if you worked hard there were other places you could get to but that's quite a hard thing to break through isn't it because I spoke to many people who came from you know really difficult backgrounds and there was no risk really no sort of cost to the risk of taking a punt on something. Whereas if you're living this very middle class life, it's actually quite a difficult thing to try to stand out and have that breakthrough. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And that's why I think lots of people um, get disappointed and, and, and therefore get stuck. And lots of people in this country, and it's not even middle class, it's there's, I think the problem with this country generally is when you get stuck, it's very good when it's mobile, when things move around. That's why I think in the end, things like immigration are good, you know, you, if you mix into the gene pool, you, you, you get change, you get movement, and things spark. That's really healthy. The danger in this country, and you see it in places like Loughborough, is people have got stuck. Outside of London particularly, I mean, it's a massive geographical divide in this country. And I feel that very keenly. I go back to Loughborough very rarely. But when I do, it's a it's a different country to to, to, to London. So, But I, I, my, my mum were hard. I went to a good school. I went to a good university. I went to Cambridge. And that was a place which I was dreading going. I nearly refused it in the way that idiotic 18-year-olds with sort of poorly considered principles do. I'm not going there. It's not for me. It's too posh. It's too... Um, it's, it, it, I'll never fit in. And actually, what I found there was a whole bunch of people who were middle class or, or, or nor, you know, very ordinary backgrounds who had just who'd got there by working hard. And actually, I found, and it's not entirely the case, because I think it does discriminate a bit against working class people. It discriminates against people for colour. I think that seems to be evidentially uh, the case. But it also, to me, demonstrated a bit of a meritocracy. Because I met loads of people who were clever and had worked really hard mm. from all sorts of backgrounds, many of whom were, were from state schools, you know, sink state schools, which had no giving away, with very poor standards of, of, of learning. But it felt like a meritocracy. It felt like there were a lot of people there who'd worked very hard. And that was the moment I kind of felt options are open. Mm. You know, it kind of felt like if you, if you grow up places like Loughborough, a lot of times you stay there. 
you don't consider going to London, you don't consider going anywhere else, that's where you're from, that's where you find a job and, and you're often, often running. And, and kind of I found when I was 18, I thought, oh, maybe there is a, mm. a world elsewhere. But the shame there is that people with your ability but didn't have the confidence to even apply didn't have that opportunity. So what do you think made you push through and actually make the application and go there when others didn't? I think, I mean, we had a great piece in the TLS, which I had it from a woman called Julia Bell, who she was a, this is in the 80s, she's from a little Welsh comprehensive, goes to Oxford, tries to get in, and feels completely uh, shunned and put down. It feels like sort of a strange public school place, and people are joking in Greek, and uh, she goes into the she goes into the interview room and there's three people sitting there, one of whom's behind her. They don't introduce themselves to her, and it felt like a conspiracy to test people and weed out those without the confidence. Mm. Uh, and she wrote this piece for us, and loads of people got in touch with me saying exactly the same thing happened to me. Um, I got confidence because I didn't. I went to a quite a good school, not amazing but all right. My parents, in the end, I saw neither of them went to university. Um, my dad went to night school from the age of 18 and he started working for an American company called 3M, it's a big Minnesota company, when he was in his 20s, stayed there the whole time and gradually got promoted and did better. But he didn't have anything, there was no reason, he just worked really hard and I, I worked really hard when I was a kid, I used to on Sunday mornings with my dad, I'd do my homework, he'd do his work and we'd listen to music together. So. I associate work with sitting with my dad and listening to music. Mm. And I think what that gave me in the end was just this, this belief, which I, I still cling to, is that if you work really hard, mm. nobody knows what they're doing in the world. I mean, the more I advance in the world, the more I feel this really keenly. People in power don't know what they're doing. People in authority don't. So as no one knows what they're doing, you're as good as everybody else. And if you work really hard, if you put the hours in, if, you, if you're willing to, 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 to keep going, You've got a chance. You might not. It might not come off. But I say to to I talk to lots of young people now, and they come in, and I try and give them advice. I always say, never look around a table. Never think you're the 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 person who should shut up because they're cleverer than you. No one's cleverer than you. No one knows what they're doing. And I, I I've had I that I kind of believe. And I think if you have that a bit of that belief, it's not to say that you're amazing. It's rather to recognise that everybody's massively flawed. Everyone's struggling. You know, you always imagine other people's lives in this sort of vacuum where they don't get ill and they don't have problems at home and um, everything they think of comes off. And of course, nobody lives like that. Everybody is struggling with something mm. and sometimes those struggles can become overpowering and sometimes they're not. But I think if you kind of accept that sort of feet of clay argument that people are all either winging it or struggling at some level, then why shouldn't it be you? You know, why shouldn't it be you is a, is a kind of message, I think. If you have a hang-up or a fear, uh, what would you say it was? Oh, it's a, I have an almost debilitating fear of failure. Um, How I, does that manifest itself? Do you think about it often? Yeah, every every morning I, I and this isn't I'm not heralding this as a as a way to live because I think it's not particularly healthy. Um, every day I wake up and the first thing I think about is what might go wrong. I worry about. Um, I've got three kids now. I had a surprise third. <coughs> a surprise third uh, this year. And so I worry about supporting them. I worry about being a breadwinner. I worry about um, what would happen if the, my main source of income dried up, if, if the place I work ceased to exist. And it's catastrophizing in some ways, but nothing lasts forever either. And you know, we, I work in an industry, you work in the industry of media, 
where all sorts of verities are very strongly being challenged now. You don't know the economic model for anything. So it's not impossible that things could go wrong. And also you could say something wrong or do something wrong. Um, but to me, every day, and so I don't say no to some things, and I probably should. You know, I, I, I do multiple different other things. I've written a book. I'm writing another one. I do other things as well as my main job because um, I don't want to fail. Mm. I don't want to... What, uh, so it's not, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome, because my kind of view is that everyone's an imposter. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's maybe it's imposter syndrome squared in that we're all an imposter and therefore it's only by keeping going and working hard and keep trying and doing new things that you'll survive. But there's no moment of repose then, there's no moment of stillness where you think, oh, that went well. And my wife says to me all the time, like, what would success look like? And I have no, no vision whatsoever of what success and pause looks like because whenever you do something then it either goes well or not quite so well and you think what's the next thing and what happens when you get caught you know if someone catches up on you or or you get found out and I don't know you know I can't I don't know if you feel the same but I kind of I look forward to retirement do you not do you ever think like that where you think if I get to 60 and it's all gone okay then maybe then I can press pause well I think you're slightly different because you were so successful so young, not just Cambridge, but after university, you got very senior positions in London very quickly indeed. So your sort of, your way of thinking is much more advanced. You're thinking about retirement before other people, actually. Yeah, I, I do. Th I, 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 so I, I worked at the Press Complaints Commission, which was a very small little body that, that dealt with. Was that your first job? Yeah, so I was 21. I um, just left home. I got a degree and I came to London. I entered a job in The Guardian, which said Press Complaints Commission uh, complaints officer. It was for 18 grand a year. Um, most junior job in the place. And it was to write decisions for this body, which is a kind of, it's a sort of, it, people won't remember it now. It's been replaced by something called Ipso, but it's a self-regulatory body for the newspaper industry. Always in, always in controversy, always in the news. Because every time a story happens, as you know, the media handling of it is kind of a story. Mm. And the British press has many foibles and problems and, and has done bad things. And so the PCC was often the lightning rod for that. So I came into that at 21. And then by 23, 24, I was the deputy director and I ended up running it just before the Leveson inquiry when it was kind of being shut down. So you were 24? So I was tw 23, 20, 24 and I was deputy director. And I think I, took, I, I became the director when I was 29. Which is extraordinary. A huge, powerful position in the UK media industry. Yeah, or, or a testament to how shoddy the institution is. I mean, it's somewhere between the two of those things. But I did the Leveson inquiry. So I wrote the largest, the Leveson inquiry, if people don't know, is a big, big public inquiry into the ethics of the British media. So the PCC was kind of central to it. So I actually wrote the longest submission to the Leveson inquiry. Um, which I did with one other person. And I kind of think I may have had a mild breakdown because I was, because that was a moment where you got to go to a courtroom and it was filmed and it was very much scrutinized and account for what you'd done mm. with your career at a very minor level and more broadly how, how the institution had, had served. And um, I remember thinking, this is hard. I just had a, a second baby at that point and then you, you worry that you're not home. I think you want to be in control of things. I think life's, you know, mm. I'm a bit of a control freak. And I think I'd like to be in control. And, and, and you can't really be in control of life. And I feel that's probably more the case now than ever because there's so many sources of stimulus and, and information and we're all on social media the whole time. And so we're never, 
we're never this moment of repose this quietness that i think i, I kind of seek is never there and it's getting less likely all, all the time and i think i got to the point with that with levison was i was worried about that and then it kind of went all right i you know but the piece uh, and i survived and i went into crisis management of all things so i used to advise companies about how to deal with the media when they were in crisis and then the sun which was in crisis the newspaper because 50 or 40 of their journalists were under arrest or being investigated needed someone to come in and try and put a framework into the place so you became managing editor manager of the sun so i was probably 33 32 33 when i did that um and that was both exhilarating and the people were wonderful. I've always found that this is another thing I think is important in, in life is if you can get on with people, your colleagues, if you can find teams where you're all happy to just mess around and laugh and if things are getting stressful, you can joke about it, you know, gallows humour. I find that absolutely critical. Otherwise, I think I would go mad and I think we'd all go mad. So I found that the PCC, tiny little team, the Sun much bigger, but again, it was embattled um, and... So that was there for probably nearly three years, uh, and um, lots of stuff went wrong um, in terms of having to deal with you know lots of poor people, poor journalists who were you know their livelihoods were threatened, their lives were were, were threatened in the sense that they could go to jail for none of them did thankfully, but you know that was constant pressure you know a, a very challenging media market where you're having to cut jobs, deal with money, the sun more so than most papers. Um, it's very brash and loud so when it makes a mistake it makes a really big one it doesn't make small mistakes it only makes big ones so you have to try and clear that up and it, it was but it was very fun it was very exhilarating and it, it and 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 um then the editor changed and managing editors kind of have to support the editor so a new editor came in so i said i'll, I'll leave i'll walk away uh, and then the job at the tls came up which is the times literary supplement this tiny little literary mag but for, in my view with massive potential to kind of take over the world because i think we live in a time when people value expertise and beauty probably more because the way they consume information is often so facile and rubbish and challengeable. And um, so there's an opportunity to, to do a bit more. So that's where I've ended up. So it's a very strange career. I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a journalist, I suppose, but I'm not a proper journalist. So there wasn't a strategy there. You were, you were setting your goals in the near term, were you, each yeah, time? Yeah, I mean, the goal is survival. Mm. I think with everything, the goal is survive try and do things that interest you but make enough money to to pay a mortgage and have a family and then carry on surviving yeah i, I don't think strategic i try to say this to, to 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 people now as well don't don't worry too much if you don't have a 20-year plan or a 10-year plan it might be nice if you know where you want to go to and actually in the media job i think if you're too focused in one area it's very, very risky because mm. the media is a massively imperiled industry. And if you're in one like newspaper sub-editing, well, there's a very strong likelihood in five years' time there won't be any newspapers or going to be two or three newspapers. So don't put, don't just do that. You know, if you're going to mm. be in the area of, 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 of journalism, it's broadest sense, make sure you can do a piece of the camera or make sure you can edit something uh, for radio or make sure you can do a podcast or, or do everything. Try and do as much as you can because I, I kind of see the world as a, as, a, as, a, as a pretty straight road, but you don't know where the roadblocks are going to be. And so it's probably several roads is the better way of thinking about it. And sometimes there will be blockages ahead. And if you're only focused on down one, that's when I think there's the risk increases. Mm. And in some ways, careers are just about managing risk. I mean, life's about managing risk, isn't it? It's about to think, well, is it, you know, where do I put my chips? And I think if you put them all in one place, that's a problem.
So you've got to always be thinking of, of other things. You obviously feel a lot of pressure from work, uh, and yet you now write books, which is the <laughs> ultimate amount of pressure, isn't it? Because you're judged by them. They're incredibly hard work. Yeah, Just tell us about the books and why you did them and what you've got from them. It's great. But I mean, and you know this, is because... Uh, I've always wanted to do one. I mean, I grew up in a house where... So I grew up just before the internet age. So my first email was when I was at university in 1998, and my first phone was when I was 20. So I lived in a house where there was a set number of books, and I read all of them. I read some of them 30 or 40 times. Um, I love books. I love reading. In fact, reading is the pretty much the way I keep my mental health balanced to any degree that it is. At the moment, at any one time, I'm reading three or four different books... I have some that I turn to when I feel particularly stressed. And so it's very important to me, books. I've always wanted to write one. And then an opportunity came to do it uh, uh, via a publisher. And I wrote a book called How Britain Really Works. It's a kind of explainer for the country. And so I used to go to work at TLS, get up at, get there at six in the morning. Literary journalists tend not to start work that early, as you might imagine. So I'd have six till 10 where I could do some some of my book. And it was 18 months of every day keep going and why do it? it's a really good question I did it because I always wanted to write a book I thought I could uh, you want to set up another road in case the roadblocks come you know so being a writer it helps it gives you stuff I, I thought I had something to say I thought there was a, the, the book hadn't been written by someone else um, but maybe I haven't done that I should have paused for two years but I'm doing another one now <laughs> so it's yeah I don't know what's interesting is you have bit of a negative outlook but then you're quite positive about breaking through you haven't given up at any point no and I, I really feel that that there's that I haven't uh, you're exactly right I'm I'm quite a glass half empty person but I, I do want to believe and maybe I'm naive but I do think that if you try um, and you act in, in good faith where you can opportunities do arise and if you don't get above yourself you know I think humility is hugely important I am you're our industry isn't known for humble people and it's often known for people who sort of suffer because of that so I think having a sense of humility and and, and where you are but having a sense of drive well, I kind of believe and I want to believe and you know I've got three young kids now and I kind of want to believe it. driver I want to believe it for them yeah that, that this is a world where there is some form of meritocracy and hard work and kindness I think kindness People will say, oh, you worked at the Sun, which wasn't very kind. And it had its moments when it wasn't. It had its moments that, that, that were as well. But I do think being able to look people in the eye and say, I've treated you properly, mm. however powerful they are, particularly when they're not powerful, because then, then you're not doing it for your own ends. That's an absolutely categorically important way of operating. And everyone says, nice guys finish second. And I don't want to believe that, actually. I actually think when it comes to jobs or opportunities, people will say, well, how did he treat you? Did mm. you like him? Mm. And the answer to that should always be yes. Not because you're being strategic, because it's the right thing to do. But I do have this belief. Do you? I mean, do you think that's the way the world works? Or is it naive? I don't think it's naive. I think, um, yeah, hard work is important, but you do need to have a... You need to... I don't believe in luck. I think opportunities come and you create them. Yeah, and actually put yourself... Luck. It is a bit of luck as well, though, isn't it, surely? I mean, yeah, but luck... You know, you've got to see the luck. Yeah, and you've got to be willing to, to do it. And you've got to eliminate that diffidence. So if someone offers you something, I mean, if you can't do it, you shouldn't do it. I mean, if you yeah. genuinely can't do it, yeah. uh, then... I mean, one of the things I do now, if people call me up and say, do you want to do this talk about something? I always remember that they always say, men always say yes to that, and women always say no. 
and you have to ask three women before they say yes. You have to ask one man, they always say yes. So I now have a rule. If someone calls me and says, oh, we're doing a thing on this author or this thing, do you want to talk about it? If I don't really know about it, I just say, no, say no. because Conscious effort to say no. To say no, yeah. To yeah. say, actually, why don't you go for this person who mm. genuinely knows what they're talking mm. about? I could probably, I mean, everyone can, that's the other thing, everyone can wing anything. Mm. So you could always say yes to everything and you'd be <laughs> all right, I would imagine. Um, that's probably how David Cameron became prime minister, <laughs> uh, if you look at it that way. Yeah. Um, so I try not to do that. And I think that's important to, 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 to say no to thing, things you can't do. But otherwise, you've got to take opportunities. Mm. People aren't going to give you stuff, I don't think. I think you're going to have to take it. Uh, one final thought on when you were very young, working on a level with older, very successful people. Did you spot any sort of current common characteristics or the way they tackle things? How did they? Is there a rule to breaking through? Do you think? No, I think the point is don't don't be impressed by age. I think that you know because I was quite young in London doing things. You know, I, I think age and and ability aren't a very strong correlation. They, there's a bit of experience, I suppose. So I, I also took that some people were very good at the job, some people weren't, and just because they'd done it for a long time didn't mean anything uh, in terms of their ability. I saw a lot of people who worried about their kids. That's that seems to be very striking to me that you could be very successful in your own self, but you worry that you've given your kids too much or they've got it too easy. I think that's an interesting problem for people who achieve success that their kids don't know what struggle is and mm. they don't know what um, uh, lack or want is and therefore that will impact on them a bit. I saw that quite a lot. You talk to a lot of people in their 50s whose kids are 19, 18, 19, 20 and you know, mm. they don't have a plan, they, don't, they, they dropped out of school and, and, and I, I saw that, that quite a lot. But no, I, I kind of feel, I feel this, I say this to everyone, I really believe this, that the worst thing you can do is sit in a room full of old people and shut up and think they know what they're talking about because they don't and they categorically don't and if they were honest with themselves they'd admit they don't but they probably won't so you should feel I, I feel people should have that confidence to try and it may come off but it may not but if you're trying mm. if you're punting if you're in the game then maybe luck does that does come your way stick thank you so much no, great pleasure